Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. Today, we have Maria French and Barry Taylor, and I am excited because these two are on a whole nother level. Honestly, they um, they run a group called Hitch & Co. They have a podcast called Sacred Anarchies. Um, they are exploring what the world looks like post-church, post-Christianity, um, potentially even post-theism. And it it's just amazing the resources they're putting out. They have lots of different courses and different um, uh, materials and podcasts. They've got Instagram Lives. They're really worth checking out. I'll, I'll make sure I give you lots of links at the end, um, and there'll be links in the po- in the show notes as well for you to check out. But they are um, two incredible minds that spend a lot of time in theology, philosophy, um, all kinds of very uh, complex spaces and yet they distill that information into such a simple to understand day-to-day practical um, application and, and I love that so much. Um, they actually have just started um, or oh, just starting next week um, a four-week deconstruction course and I, I get messages every day by someone saying could you promote my book or my course or my whatever um, and you'll know if you follow me, I don't promote much stuff and maybe give a shout out every couple of weeks to something. Um, And it's because I'm very, very cautious on what I think is something worth promoting. Um, I really need to know the person um, or persons behind it, or I want to really look at the content and make sure this is something that is going to be beneficial and safe for people that are deconstructing. People that are deconstructing are so vulnerable um, and there's so much um, possibility, even without any intent to do so, to manipulate um, people in that vulnerable space. And I wholeheartedly endorse what uh, Barry and Maria are doing with this course. And, and as people, I just trust them so much because I know their heart is in the right place, that they are not trying to force anyone's hand into a particular model of deconstruction or way of deconstruction. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage you to check out the course as well. There's a link in the show notes to that. Um, all right, before we get started, just a reminder, you can check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's a completely free resource if you're going through deconstruction and want to try and connect with other people that are going through deconstruction in a local context rather than just online. The deconstructionnetwork.com is an amazing resource. Check it out, completely free, and hopefully you'll find some people in your local area you can connect with. And then, of course, if you're looking for more of an intimate um, online Uh, community, I would recommend you check out my Patreon. Um, Obviously, by becoming a Patreon, you support what I'm doing. Um, You help me do what I do for free. I talk to people hours on end every day and and help them on their process. I put out these resources, podcasts, videos, different things like that. All of that is always free. Um, And by supporting what I do, thank you. I give you access to a private discussion group. There's about 100 people on there right now. And we have the best conversations. We talk about deconstruction. We talk about different spiritualities. But we also just talk about day-to-day life. We talk about family dynamics. We talk about um, the hardship of being in relationships where our partner isn't deconstructing and all sorts of other things. Um, we also talk about food and uh, polar bears and who else. You know, I mean, It's just everything and everything. It's a wonderful, wonderful space. Um, and so if you're looking for something like that as well, I'd recommend you check out my Patreon as well. And you can do that at patreon.com slash or phildrysdale.com slash uh, partner. Um, all right, that's enough. Let's get diving into the conversation with Barry and Maria. I'm so excited for you to enjoy this and, and experience this. Um, and so, yeah, I'll see you on the other side. It's good to have you both on. I feel like we, like, this is such a thing. I have to remember all the things we said on the prior podcast because we just recorded on your podcast. Yeah. And I have to avoid it. I'm just starting, by the way. I, I don't do any soft entries or anything. I just kind of record. 
Um, so we'll probably include a good chunk of uh, Maria fussing in the camera <laughs> and the light. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I need to remember like, oh, if I, if I mention something that people are like, what the hell is he talking about? It's because we just recorded a podcast for your podcast, which is called... Sacred Anarchies, a post-church podcast. Way cooler name than mine. Um, <laughs> and so we'll, I'll, I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, and we'll, we'll probably plug it towards the end as well. But uh, if, if, yeah, if people want, they can go back and watch that um, before this. Uh, we might be bouncing off a couple of ideas, but we'll it'll probably be quite self-contained. Um, yeah. yeah, Barry, uh, you guys are in the UK with me. Um, you are incredible minds. I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of talking to you both um, over lockdown, met probably about March, April last year, and just been blown away with, um, yeah, just what you're doing, how you go about what you do, uh, the way you guys think is just amazing. Uh, it just, yeah, I, I, I'm excited for this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while as well. Um, and so, yeah, this is going to be really fun. Do you want to give a rough overview of maybe each of you kind of who you are and what you're doing. I know you guys are probably very overlapped in what you're doing. Um, but uh, yeah, and we can go a bit more into some of your story um, some of your aspects as we go or something, but just kind of rough over you and then we'll, we'll dive off from there. I don't know who wants to go first. Go ahead, Marie. Um, well, uh, Barry and I have been best friends and colleagues for several years, and we have done work in the area of post-Christianity and post-theism and church innovation and theological innovation. Um, as long as we've, we've known each other in a lot of different capacities, some official, some unofficial. Um, for the last, I don't know, three or four years, we've been working on a very specific project together. Um, and that project ended last December and we launched H&Co, which is, you know, what we're doing now. And, you know, the podcast that that we do is on behalf of H and Co. And you know we're basically all about doing work at the intersections of faith and culture and theology, and you know helping people navigate those next steps after they find themselves outside of you know parameters of traditional Christianity, traditional theism, traditional ideas of church. But they're not atheists. They're not agnostic. They want to continue to engage faith, but in ways that are really meaningful and transformative, mm. um, and that don't ask them to compromise their their sense of integrity or reason or postmodern sensibilities but you know a faith that is actually living and breathing and dynamic and alive and centered in in culture and context so we do a lot of different things at h and co we do a lot of content creation a lot of courses we have culture courses every month we have cohorts for um, churches, pastors, leaders, you know, Christians who are finding themselves, you know, what's happening right now? What am, what am I doing as a person of faith in the 21st century? You know, we, we have the podcast, we're launching a theological coaching model shortly. So um, yeah, and we, we do this all in the context of our friendship and, you know, life that we've lived together, observations we've made, research we've done. So yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a big human project, I suppose. Do you know what's funny about this? On your podcast, you introduced me as someone that does a lot and gets a lot done. And I'm like tired <laughs> listening to that list. I'm like, God, I would just not know how to do it. I know it's two of you, but like, God, that's a lot of stuff you guys are doing. It's amazing. <laughs> well, thanks oh, yeah. for saying that because it doesn't often feel like we're doing enough, but that's probably, you know, my um, perfectionist tendency saying that. You have to keep yourself busy. <laughs> yeah I, I know that feeling i know that feeling of not feeling that you don't do enough and then you count up the hours and you're like oh, a decent amount actually <laughs> yeah. 
Now your That's turn awesome. to have a go. Oh, um, what she said. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that fascinates me about you both is that you, you're very, you've got very different backgrounds, like um, in a lot of ways. There's, there's a kind of crossover point in the middle where you kind of kind of meet up. But like, Maria, you grew up in the church and Barry, you kind of grew up outside the church. I, I started reading your book, um, Sex, God and Rock and Roll, uh, which I think is a brilliant name. Uh, I just love it. Uh, switching drugs for God, I think that sums up God perfectly, right? For the now he's, for the masses he's or whatever, switched yeah? back. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Barry, do you want to talk a bit about that, about like, you know, uh, some of your path, you know, because you both identify as post theists right now, right? Is that is that fair to say? Uh, jump in the gun by that or? Uh, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, or if, if identifying is something you want to do or not, I know it's, uh, we're all very wary to put any labels on anything. Yeah, we're right? like, oh, um, we have to label it, okay, yeah. Sure. But I mean, what, you know, you didn't grow up a theist. You kind of transitioned into that on some level or, or yeah. that, is that not fair to say? Did you grow up kind of theistic, but just not? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I grew up uh, when, you know, religious education in British schools was largely around Christianity and, and I was exposed to uh, Christianity. But, but I sort of came of uh, age in an era when religion was essentially, uh, as, it, as it still is on many levels today in Britain, largely uh, sidelined and uh, regarded as a historical kind of artifact. I mean, you know, Britain is not mm. renowned for being a deeply religious culture, you know. So I, gr I grew up in a, a religionless and a largely religionless environment experientially. I mean, I had some encounters with it, but I never regarded myself as uh, a theist. And, and to be honest, my my entry into Christianity wasn't based on on a desire for, for theism in the first place. Um, that eventually sort of came with the package and I took that on board for a while, but uh, it didn't take me, well, it took me a while. It seems like it took me a while, but it, it took me about a decade to sort of come to terms with the fact that theism wasn't really a driving factor for me. So um, mm. I sort of had to then work out what what the implications of all that was which is what how i sort of then wound up getting involved in kind of academics and theology and stuff like that because um i was interested in um the implications of all of that but but essentially um i i, I came into religion a, a, as a um a young adult you know in my mid mid 20s sure. and uh so I didn't have a lot of the um, burden and baggage that someone who sort of grows up in the church may find themselves dealing with. So, you know, so Maria's story is, is much more entrenched, which I, I think in some ways is quite a typical American story as well. I mean, America, America is and remains a deeply religious society, however you pass that out. I mean, yeah. it just... Compared to Europe, it, 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 it's like... Um, it's night and day, really. Yeah, night. It, it, it's completely night and day. I mean, what is it, 3% or less in England uh, have religious affiliation, and it's like 48 or 49% in America, something crazy like that. So, yeah, so so my, my, my religious experience was largely uh, an adult experience. I still, you know, walked into... Um, 
same church that everybody else walks into, you know, with all with all of its, you know, commensurate stuff. But um, a lot of that stuff was not, uh, I mean, I took things on that I later kind of cast off. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes with the territory, regardless of your age. But um, it was easier for me to, it was much easier for me to shake those things off, I think, than somebody who kind of is almost, I, want, I don't want to say brainwashed, that seems too unfair, but deeply, deeply indoctrinated into a, an ideological construct that permeates your entire being for most of your life. Yeah. And then fucks you up when you're older. Oh, are we allowed to say that? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, 100%. As much as you want. Um, I'm Scottish. Are you kidding? Um, no, so, yeah. Not, yeah, you know, I didn't want you to have to put a, a rating on your, your podcast. <laughs> I don't think enough people watch it to, to check, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's, it's so interesting. As you were saying it, I was it's like, because I reckon about 70% of my audience are probably about American. And, yeah. and as you're saying that, I'm like, gosh, it is it's such a foreign concept to grow up outside of religion. Cause even if yeah. with that kind of like 48% or whatever it might be um, today that people go, well, yeah, I grew up in Christian home. I'm, I'm very deeply entrenched. I affiliate with Christian. Like, even if you don't everywhere, your money and God, we trust you. You go to, you know, you stay at a home and there's a Bible in your chest yeah. of drawers. I mean, it's, it's just, it, there's this yeah, God it's, everywhere. It's, it's just everywhere you go. You, yeah. You're part of your declaration to, Dependence, start of your your different um, things you say in school. You know, you you make your uh, proclamations and you swear to the gods, and you know, it's just everything is so yeah. entrenched in it. I should also I should really also, grow up in that. Yeah, I should also say that the the bulk of my uh, religious experience was in America. My, mm. my involvement in, in in the church took place in California, so um, that that was because I lived in California for over 30 years. So um, California was the, the large part of my um, adult life. And, it, and it's where I started to do the work that I was doing and um, yeah. started to explore all the things that I, that I was um, thinking. And, um, but you know, but I've also done a lot of uh, traveling and been involved in various things around the world. And I've always been interested in kind of uh, what's happening and what's going on in in the event of Christianity um, as it plays out in mm. in our time. So um, yeah, but we we kind of intersected. I think. I mean, I I mean, I, th I think it's fair to say that um, I was probably. By most people's standards, fully fully deconstructed by the time I met Maria. <laughs> to say the um, least. Uh, to say the least. I mean, I, I you know, I was, I was still. Uh, I, I remain interested in. Uh, I remain invested and interested in the the conversations in and around and about uh, Christianity. And uh, I was involved actually, technically in in both. Uh, academic theological education and sort of quasi local localized religious community experiences until I moved back to England, but mm. in a very, very philosophically deconstructed way. So in, in a kind of, you know, creating 
different kinds of uh, experiential communities that incorporated religion, largely, largely Christian, um, largely Christian religious perspective, you know, because I think that's the, for me, that's the larger context of um, the shaping of Western culture. I mean, I'm interested in other religious ideas and ideologies, but arguably the vapor trail of Christianity is what holds Western culture and informs Western culture uh, and, and yeah. continues to. I mean, the, you know, whether whether people believe in it or not, you know, it's an undeniable aspect of life in the Western world is the impact of, you know, Christian thought mm -hmm. on um, how we've shaped and framed our society. So I'm very interested in the symbolism of Christianity as it manifests um, in very quite often hidden ways um, in, mm. in the cultural landscape of the West. Yeah, wow. That's, I mean, that's such a huge topic as well, because, yeah, you can look at something and go, oh, 3%, you know, professed Christian. It can't be a very Christian nation, as maybe a lot of people would throw that term around. Yeah. But, I mean, it is, it's Christendom, you know, through and through. You go to the UK sure. and it is, it's, it's, it's a Christian nation in a lot of ways, right? Um, it's well, well, I mean, you know, the queen, the queen apparently is the defender of the faith. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I, there was a ruckus. Isn't she not? Isn't she the head of the church? Yeah, technically. Yeah. yeah. She's the defender of the faith. I mean, there was a big ruckus because uh, I think many years ago, um, Prince Charles said that when he became king, he wanted to be known as the defender of faiths, plural. Mm. People got really pissed off about that and said, well, that's that. That's just not right, you know. What's the matter with him, you know, with his organic gardens and his, you know, anti-modernist approach to architecture, you know, and his double-breasted suits? What's wrong with him, you know? So, it, it shows how attached to Christendom we are, though. And I, I often find this well, because, as a fascinating component. We pull yeah. it out. We're like, so not not as a Christian in this in this context, and we're all like, oh, who cares? And then he goes, oh, I want to be a defender of faith. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa! Don't touch my Christian tradition, though. I well, like yeah, that. It, yeah, it comes back to, I think it comes back again to the idea, you know, um, Feuerbach said that um, all religion is social production and all religion is culture. Mm -hmm. So we, we may not embrace Christianity. We actually might, you know, a, a, as a society, many people might reject Christianity and its ideology and beliefs, but they still see it as part of the national fabric. And if mm. you challenge that, you're challenging what it means to be British or American. Yeah. And you see this yeah. over and over. This is why these conversations are, 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 are more complex than we allow sometimes, I think, because we don't, yeah. we make too simplistic a demarcation between this and that, you know, and, and we miss the nuance of, of how that goes on. I've been reading a really interesting book called, um, the resource of Christianity. It's by a, a, a French, a French pro professor at the University of Paris, and and his examination is on the impact of Christian thought on the West, not what they thought, but the impact of how Christian thinking, positive and negatively, has affected the West. Mm. And I think that's a conversation that seldom happens and, and, and it seldom even happens within christianity and even the work that you do uh, you know the work of deconstruction it's really a question of the impact of particular kinds of christian thought and thinking on individual and collective lives 
and that, that's yeah. a conversation that I think um, needs to be had in conjunction with other more subjective and personal conversations to to really um, get to help us sort of understand because you know sorry I'm waffling on here I should no, shut this is good it's a good waffle no, um, you know we we live in such a hyper individualized society and everything is very subjective and very experiential today you know it's all about mm -hmm. it's all about memes you know and it's all about me and it's all about what I'm going through and what I'm dealing with and and we we have a very sort of loose relationship to the culture in which we find ourselves but we are who we are because of the culture in which we find mm. ourselves and it, and it shapes us more than we realize you know it gives us that language which you know our language is what gives us ourselves without language we aren't people in a sense you know i mean that's one of the philosophical arguments that that language is is what gives us you know we're speaking beings i think it was heidegger or hegel you know whoever somebody you know we're speaking beings and speaking beings is what gives us our a sense of self well you know if you speak this language or that language you actually are a different kind of self which is why language is which is why language is so incredibly important which is why which is actually how i wound up sort of interested in uh religion and it's how i kind of wound up interested in philosophy and how i wound up interested in deconstruction because that's about language not your yeah. kind of deconstruction i mean no sure the philosophy, philosophy yeah philosophy, deconstruction stuff like that so yeah those so those kind of uh that's kind of i guess that's sort of the 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 kind of world of thought that that i inhabit in in these mm. conversations is the the larger the larger cultural threads and themes that when their way th the, and i think that the darker threads that give shape to stuff but we pay let less attention to in, in, in the conversations because our conversations tend to be more um, immediate, you know, the, the, the issue and the crisis at hand, not, not the stuff that actually led to, to the moment, to the moment, at, the moment at hand. Hmm. Jesus, Barry, it's Monday morning. Shut up. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You, you give me enough to think about for the week now. Uh, <laughs> I have to cancel all my other podcasts just so I can mull all this over. Sorry, I, I apologize. I love it. No, I love it. How do you, I mean... This is what she has to deal I, with. Stuff know? like this, I, I'm like, gosh, I am just... Yeah, well, I, I just sit and I'm like, gosh, I could listen to this forever. Eh? And people like yourself, like um, like Pete Rollins, like these philosophical thoughts uh, leaders that, that kind of like sit there and mull this stuff over and then can put it so break it down so easily and so wonderfully like how do you how do you stay out with barry and not just go oh what am i doing with life i don't know what to say what to do like that's, that's, that's i mean this is just incredible stuff but I, I i wonder like how do you engage with these kind of topics are you um someone that, that really dives into the kind of intellectual kind of like extrapolation of these kind of uh, theories or have, have you kind of gone about this um process in your journey in a different way like what, what what's it like to be you on this journey yeah she's way smarter than me let me just say that up front so uh i'll just put that i'll just put that out there so um that's not true <laughs> there's, there's, very very well, the, the thing is, there's so many different metrics of intelligence, right? I mean, sure. at the end of the day. And so, 
Yeah. No, Barry, Barry is in, incredibly gifted in so many ways, not just intellectually or academically. There are a lot of smart people, you know, who can read walking around yes. out there, but he has a gift where he can kind of integrate and synthesize and give back to you in ways that are really accessible and that makes sense. Yeah. And we'll just kind of cut right to the heart of, of meaning, really. And he doesn't have anything to lose. He doesn't care like zero fucks given usually Excellent. if if anyone is ever trying to filter him it's me because <laughs> i'm like i get you i'm right there with you but if you could just say it like this and i've got a few fucks to give me though. out <laughs> um you know so uh i mean when i first met barry i I was immediately drawn to the fact that there was something he was saying that I wanted that resonated with me, aside from the fact that he is just incredibly fabulous to look at. I mean, we're on Zoom now, but when the world is open and life is open, you'll see him on any given day with his, you know, suits from RTH and his loud Paul Smith t-shirts and his colors and his, you know, leopard skin shoes and his long, you know, he's, he's quite yeah. the sight to sort of- I'm going to link to both your Instagrams, but people need to check out the, the, the extraordinary style on UK Bloke on, uh, on Instagram yeah. because that's, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, he's- Mad inspiration there just so so many interests and um he's an incredibly prolific reader you know he's reading dozens of my my husband also is an incredibly prolific and the both of them these these two men that are closest to me in my life are reading like <laughs> barry probably reads a bit more than simon simon probably averages like i don't know several books a month um barry's is more than that and it's tough stuff so I always say i go to his flat and it's the library of my dreams i'm always borrowing books from him um but when when we met, um, you know, as as our our friendship grew and our relationship grew, I would call him and I would sit there with a legal pad and a pen and just ask questions and just you know start writing. I um, mean, you know, I was really at, when I met him, I was literally a month out of my divorce, my first marriage, my the divorce from my first husband being finalized, and I was coming out of really a religious environment that was you know, something, you know, like we all engage on a, on a fairly regular basis when we're working with people who, who are deconstructing. Now I had been in seminary for a few years. So I was thinking new thoughts and, you know, my, my intuition, you know, and kind of the current of what I was learning was kind of moving me through some new ideas and, and, you know, um, forcing me to kind of leave some stuff happily behind. And so when I met him and I'm learning and we're talking and like, you know, he's, he's investing in this with me, I just, at some point, shortly after that, I was just like, what is this? What do you call this? <laughs> you know? And, and that was the first time I heard the term post-theism, you know, and I had never kind of understood that, okay, so you have traditional theism on one end of the spectrum, you have atheism, you know, atheism outside of theism on the other. And, and you just have this really unhelpful, super boring conversation going back and forth all right. the time. And what we were doing in our early conversations were transcending that spectrum and sort of asking what's next and how do you continue to engage your faith that kind of leaves both theism and atheism, you know, in your dust as really unhelpful, outmoded, past their sell-by date constructs. And that's sort of what we were doing. And then that moved me into radical theology. And um, I was already pursuing continental philosophy. I was already pursuing, you know, hermeneutics and, you know, um, subversive ways of, of understanding all of this stuff. But 
yeah, he, he keeps me on, on my toes. And aside from, you know, we don't just sit around and kind of talk philosophy and theology. We don't shatter my illusions. That's why I entirely imagine you guys just sit and have these incredible conversations and then occasionally put out like a, a course or a podcast. That's, that's what I want to believe. Okay. We, we exactly do do that. We definitely, we do do that. Um, we watch a lot of television and old movie films and we eat yummy food and, uh, you know, cook and we travel. Barry and I have our, we've, we've traveled a, a fair amount together. We love doing it. Um, in fact, last Christmas, um, my last, yeah, my last international trip before I came to England in March for the lockdown, uh, we spent two, re- two weeks in, in Moscow over Christmas. And wow. that was really incredible because one of the many lives that Barry has lived, <laughs> Phil, you might find this very funny. Um, he used to be a correspondent for, um, wasn't TVN, what was it? It was Pat Robertson's gig. Yeah. back in the 80s under the Soviet yes Union. yeah and he that spoke is my Russian. favorite bit of information ever <laughs> i wasn't a correspondent i hosted sorry uh, you tell your story <laughs> i hosted a russian language television show with a russian news anchor on the meaning of life wow and it was around the time of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and Yeltsin. And it was interviews with Russian musicians and poets interjected with uh, essentially testimonies from from Westerners uh, uh, of sorts. And it was it was for Pat Robertson, but it's but but it was for their international arm. So it wasn't directly linked but um it was you know i mean this was in the last gasps of my mm-hmm. uh the last gasps of my more official evangelical days and uh so um it, it was a um it aired it aired at christmas in uh, on the the main russian television network and got 39 million requests for Bible literature. <laughs> wow. Well, Pat must have been pleased. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> which is actually when I sort of then checked out because it got co-opted by, by, by that and became something else. But, I, you know, I planted mm. a couple of churches in Russia, blah, blah, blah. You know, did all that shit back then. So You must be amazing at two truths and a lie. Because like, do you know what I mean? The, the, the stuff you can pull out. Oh yeah, no, I did this Russian TV show. No one's going to believe that. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, his, Phil, I know you talked about his, his book earlier. Um, so his book is fabulous and you just, you just go through it because you just kind of want to keep reading these stories. But I will say as someone very close to him, it is just a fraction really of his life. I mean, right. there's so many untold stories. So we need volume two, volume three. We need. Yeah, yeah, I'm fabulous. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, both- one of the things, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really interested. Obviously, my my area of research, my area of work, is working with a community of people that that have self-identified largely as deconstructing Christians, mm-hmm. sure. um, and that is, I mean, a fascinating world because you ask. 100 people, what does deconstruction mean? You'll get 100 different answers uh, in this in this world, in this yeah. community, um, all revolving around sort of the same sort of 
themes. Um, and so I remember when we first started to research this, I sat down with a research team here in the UK um, and they were like, all right, cool. So you want to research a group of people that are deconstructing Christians. There's kind of a gap in research. There's de-churched, there's disaffiliated, but they're kind of somewhere in this weird quasi place. Yeah. What's a deconstructing Christian then? And I just sat there and I was like, I've worked with these people for like about eight years at this point. And I'm like, yeah. shit, I actually don't know how to define this. I really don't. Um, and it was this moment where I was like, I really, really don't know what this group is. Um, and, and what makes it an interesting group is it's not, it doesn't really overlap with other traditional uses of the word deconstruction. I, yeah. I have a theory that generally, I think it's probably come from a more generalized use of the word deconstruction where people are just saying, this is like, you know, my house falling apart, <laughs> like tearing my house down, ripping out a, a, a few rooms and realizing, God, this is a mess. Like that, that to me feels more likely. Um, yeah. But another common use of the word deconstruction, I, I even say common is probably really unfair. <laughs> it's quite a niche, I would say, unless you're in a kind of philosophical world. Um, is the philosophy of deconstruction um, that kind of was coined by Jacques Derrida and, and yeah. he kind of explored this kind of like, um, and I'm not an expert in this at all, kind of the kind of post-structuralist kind of like questioning yeah. basically everything, right? Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, do you, do you have thoughts on, I know you're not a big fan of the term deconstruction uh, as used by this community. I'm not either. I, I definitely have. Yeah. I, I just, I'm constantly in this torn place of going, I wish we'd come up with a different term, but you know what? You don't get to change the term. At a certain point, it runs yeah. away, right? And so yeah. and maybe Jack Serato would be the first person to go, who cares, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. But do you, do you, could you maybe like touch on some of that? Because I know people listening to this would be so interested, but I do not have the philosophical expertise to kind of distill maybe a lot of Derrida's kind of thought on de deconstruction. Uh. Are you asking me or are you asking Maria or asking Oh, no, that question is... Any, anyone here that wants to uh, begin You're that? The uh, well, well, firstly, I, the, firstly, let me say, I, I, I think there is a natural tendency by people who want to put a, to hang a hat on something, to appropriate a cultural word. And I think... Um, and I think the same thing happened with um, when in, in the 90s, um, when postmodernity was a word that was in vogue within uh, Christianity. Everything suddenly became the postmodern church, blah, 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 blah. Then the next thing, and, and I, don't mean, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, I'm just saying that there's a trajectory here, and this is why sure. I, should, uh, I, I don't think that the deconstruction conversation actually is happening in a in a vacuum. I think it's actually part of a long line of conversations that are similar that have happened in Christianity since the, the 1980s, particularly. Um, and the same thing happened with the emerging church, emergent theory and quantum. You know, if you go back and you listen to a lot of the early emerging church people, you know, or people associated that, Rob Bell or Doug Paget, people like that, you know, they were all talking about, you know, emerging theory and quantum theory and stuff like that and deconstruction because uh because of the the re uh the re-embrace in the last 10 or 15 years of the intersections of continental philosophy and theology i think deconstruction is one of those words that's been lying around mm. that um fits in in some ways although i i i i've uh, and i've said to you i i think the the distinction is uh, a little different, but but it, it makes sense to me. And you know, and without being cynical, 
in a decade from now, there'll be another group that emerges and they will have whatever that cultural, it might be consciousness movement. It'll be something, you know, there, there will be, yeah. because this is how we are as people. We pick up words and we reinterpret them and reappropriate them for our cause. And they lose some of their uh, initial meaning and they mm. gain a new meaning. The challenge is, of course, is that the the essence of what deconstruction was in philosophy, I, th I think could be really helpful to the deconstruction conversation, but it's not really a part of the deconstruction conversation for the, mo for the most part, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 it, and it's complicated because as you said, it, it largely comes from Derrida, who, who was one of the, the sort of um, architects of postmodern thinking and philosophy. He was part of a group of largely French philosophers who became disillusioned with ideology in, in the wake of um, the failure of the Marxists to join the students in the 1968 student uprising in Paris. You know, 1968 was this really weird year where lots of strange uh, uprisings, you know, sort of the hippie culture in, in, in America, um, student riots in, um, you know, uh, France and Czechoslovakia and East Germany, you know, uh, the cultural revolution in full swing in China, you know what I mean? There's this like whole thing that's going on. And, and out of that disillusionment, a whole new sort of philosophical world was, was born um, that was essentially challenging the ideologies that governed the sort of Western world uh, as we'd known it. And uh, Derrida, you know, is the sort of architect really of, of this theory of deconstruction. And the reason it's so difficult is because he redefined it three or four times in his life. So mm -hmm. you were never quite sure, even if you read Derrida, depending on when you read whatever work, you'd get a different take on it. But, but ultimately it was about language which is why I think it has such importance for any conversation about <laughs> reconfiguring or redefining or deconstructing faith is because basically he, he was sort of arguing, arguing two things really. One, you know, he, he famously said, there's no meaning outside the text. That, that's mm -hmm. one of his big sort of catchphrases, you know, very much misinterpreted like, you know, McLuhan's The Medium is the Message. And basically he, he sort of said that um, language and particularly ideas in language like truth or justice, they're unstable and they're impossible to determine and they're incredibly complex. So to try and affix a singular fixed meaning on that is problematic. You have to keep sort of drilling down into that concept, into that language idea, till you get down to what's inside that idea, mm. which I think is what's happening in some ways, arguably, I think what's going on in deconstructing of, uh, uh, of faith is a similar thing. He also, one of his sort of earlier things was that it was a kind of uh, a critique, if you like, of, the platonic idea uh, of the relationship between essence and forms. 
And, you know, you got to, I think we have to remember that a lot of Christian thought has kind of neoplatonic issues at, at, at its heart. So, that, yeah. you know, when we, people say, oh, we're not into philosophy, you know, we're into theology, you know, we're into scripture. Well, you know, yeah, there's that, that you can't do that. That's the first thing right. Derrida would tell you, that you can't do that. There is no such thing as, well, the Bible mm-hmm. says, you know, open the book. What's it going to say to you? Absolutely nothing. You read and you interpret. And you yeah. interpret. And much of our interpretation is inherited. And much of that tradition is riddled with platonic philosophical thought. And, and essentially, you know, um, basically, Plato was like um, the essence of something takes precedence over the appearance of something. So this isn't the 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 appearance of the body that's not it it's the essence of the body the soul you know so if you mm. want to sort of understand how this plays out the 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 obsession of evangelicalism with the 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 primacy of the soul and the afterlife you can drill that all the way back to the greek philosophers um and it and it based and derrida would go no 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 it's the appearance that's important He's not denying essence, but he's reversing the, the 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 stuff. So ultimately, deconstruction is is about um, digging down. Jack Jack Caputo, sort of, um, who was very helpful to me in in uh, understanding Derrida, because you know I, I I'm a Neanderthal when it comes to to philosophy, you know, and and uh, I, I I read um, I read philosophical texts like a three-year-old who's learning their ABCs. You know, I try and sound out the words, and you know, and I have no idea what an apple is until I see a picture of it. You know, you know what I mean? So, no, no, no I'm, I'm no expert in this, but but um, Jack S- S- Caputo sort of talks about that. The, in the end, it's about what's going on inside something that's the important thing. So what's going on? What's going... So it's not the name of God that's important. It's what's going on inside the name of God. So mm-hmm. what's going... Uh, and you could take this out in a very kind of um, unprofessional way and go, it's what's going on in the name of Christianity under that umbrella that you really need to investigate and, and, and explore and, and look at. So I, I think I said to you before, I, I think a lot of what is called deconstructing faith is more uh, a coming to terms with... Um, it's coming to terms with uh, the need to drill down a little bit more into stuff and also to face the fact that we somehow thought we'd got the answers. And when we learned that they weren't the answers, we spiraled into um, whatever it is that we've, we've spiraled into. So I, I don't know if that, if that sort of makes any sense. But there's a, you know, there's a, 
so there's a, a very, so the philosophical tradition of deconstruction goes in a very different direction, I think, for the most part. And again, yeah. like you said, de- you know, you t- we've, we're talking about deconstructing faith, like we talk about all these things, like it's some monolithic uh, thing that everybody's doing right. the same. You know, it, it's it's like even Christianity. We talk about Christianity like it's it's one, one thing. thing. But it's an umbrella. It's an umbrella. I mean, in America, what they have twenty-three thousand denominations. They're all under that umbrella, and they all believe the same and entirely different from each other. You know, mm-hmm. and so the deconstructing of faith is also on a much more personal level. I mean, there, are, you know, there are groups of people they have similar issues and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm actually interested to ask you, what, uh, what do you think are the key questions that people who are deconstructing are asking. Like, uh, is there is there a yeah. nexus? There, there's definitely huge overlaps, like massive yeah. overlaps. I think, like generally speaking, you can tie them to the the culture. You can tie them to what culture is asking, that what the world is asking, because they're turning around and going to the church. Well, will you marry this gay person? Will yeah. you? You know, how can you? I think something really interesting, and I think it's quite subtle how this has played out but i think it's becoming more and more interesting as it as, as it does is the the world right now certainly the western world is asking about um, punitive justice and we're starting to research more and more restorative forms of justice of, of penal kind of um uh, you know judicial kind of models and things and and yeah. even in the uk which is historically very uh, punitive is yeah. starting to roll out different uh, restorative models because we're figuring out things like if we spend one pound on a restorative model of uh, prison, we sure. save eight pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's just like, well, that works. And then we go, oh, and the recidivism rate drops from 87% to 22% or things like that. And so I think what that does is the world grows up, the world evolves and it becomes less punitive. And then it turns around and goes, hold on, your whole system is based on a God who's punitive. If we yeah. figured out punitive stuff doesn't work, how can you have a God that's doing this via punitive methods? Why can't your God be restorative? And, and so I think as the world starts to explore new ideas, oh, homosexuality is evil. And then they move on and go, maybe it's not evil. And then they go, oh, actually, this is good. Interesting. Oh, cool. That's that's a hard sh- tr- shift for anyone to make in general, any kind of like radical change in opinion on yeah. something. But what they do is they turn around to church and go, what about that? And I think it's people within the church going, shit, my answers aren't that good on these questions. Yeah. My answers aren't good on why is why does God burn people for eternity in hell when even Hitler at like the 18th zillionth year, you're kind of going, all right, God, you're being a bit vindictive here. You know what I mean? At some point it goes, cool. oh, this feels a bit whatever. So I think yeah. there's, there's common guess, questions for sure. Yeah, this is why actually we do the work that we do at the coal face of theology and culture. Mm. Because undeniable... For, for me, anyway, this these conversations that have been going on, and they've been growing, they've been growing in uh, momentum since the the nineteen eighties. I think these conversations, this this deconstruction conversation, it's culturally informed and it's culturally shaped. But I don't see very much cultural conversation going on in these deconstructing faith conversations other than a critique of um or an anger at you know well how did this happen well it happened because the relationship between religion and culture is more symbiotic and synchronistic 
than we probably like to admit. And the problem at the moment is we, we, we have a modern, many people essentially, I think, were immersed in a largely modern construction of Christianity. And that remains institutionally the same, the same, a sort of bureaucratic model of religion that, that started um, with, the, with the Reformation. Um, and in the, in the culture, and particularly because of the very thing that we're using today, the, the internet and digitality, Mm. There, there's uh, another conversation that's bleeding in to things like religion and spirit. It's why you have these conversations like, you know, um, I'm spiritual but not religious. 20 years ago, nobody would have said that. Right. Not a, you probably wouldn't have found a person 20 years ago or thereabouts who would have ever said, I'm spiritual, not religious. That's a, a, a contemporary distinction based on a whole set of dynamics i think that are um are at play in in um the the way things are going and i think what a lot of people and what and the, the work that we've been doing and the work that i i did in los angeles was a very long time was helping people come to terms with uh the 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 shifts within them to see them for what they are on, on a number of, uh, yeah. of levels, because I because I think on one level there, there's a natural the 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 the, the Christian um, perspective of a fixed ideology is actually unnatural. It's an unnatural mm -hmm. thing. The the questioning that's natural, but religion that's based on uh, certainty and security and satisfaction can't afford to be open and porous. It has right. to be a fixed ideology. And so people are un, un, unmooring themselves from that and then trying to work out what to do and then how that plays out plays out in, 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 in many ways for, for lots of different yeah. people. But I'm talking too much, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's really good. Um, but yeah, I'm aware as well. I'm sure you've got lots of thoughts on this. Like, I mean, Looking at that, you know, these very static models of what faith can look like. And, and there is this component of um, a conservative, traditional, conventional model of religion is at best uh, rooted in now, if not somehow willingly wanting to go backwards. Um, and so it's always going to be at war with anyone that moves in a different direction. We might say they've moved forwards, but we might that, that would be seen as a regression for someone else or, or however that might look. Um, sorry, Barry, go on, jump in. Oh, no, before Maria talks, I was just going to say, it's not just conservative. The liberal church is equally Absolutely. as challenging. Equally as challenging sure. um, because they both operate on the same continuum. One, yeah, just well, has, one has more room for social imagination and awareness, which is why sometimes there's a lateral move. People move from conservative churches to more liberal churches because there's more room to breathe. Yeah, um, yeah. But the structure and the ideology at the heart of it, you still have the same problems because you're yeah. dealing with the same theological notions. They just stretch out on it in a different yeah. way, I think. But anyway, I'm going to... No, I, I agree massively because I think that's what we see again and again. I think if you have a question of 
well, my gay son came out to me and I really struggled with that because I, of course, God loves him and I love him and I don't want to reject him and I don't want to, like, I don't want to experience this. So you start to Google, can a gay person go to church? And you go, oh, God, there's a progressive church down my road. Okay, cool. And, and you've not really questioned beyond that question massively. Maybe once you get there, they might ask a few other questions beyond that. Maybe you'd be exposed to, gosh, actually, yeah, my faith has been quite racist as well or, or sexist or whatever. But you're not going to start really tearing apart certain theistic kind of questions that you might in other, in other models. So I do think a lot of people make very horizontal shifts rather than vertical shifts. You know, ver horizontal growth rather than vertical growth might be a, a way that I would, I would often put that. Um, but I'm interested, as you guys look at this, I mean, Maria, what, what is your thought on how we help people through this? What, what, are, the, what are these kind of post-theistic, how do we, because this is something that I think, you go back 40, 50 years ago, people didn't have a post-theistic option on the whole. I mean, gosh, even today, most people don't. Most of the deconstruction movement I see, um, people are still going, does this mean I'm going to be an atheist if I'm not a theist, right? If, if I don't believe in God, like, am I just an atheist? Because there's fear of that, especially in America, right? Mm. Atheist is like, you know, the worst thing you could be. Um, some people prefer to be a Satanist than an atheist. Uh, <laughs> you know? um, and, and so like, the, there's this whole world beyond that within post-theism. Like, what is it that you are offering? Like, what, what is it that drew you into post-theism? And how do you begin to lay that out for people as a, as a playground to explore yeah um, versus that theist atheist kind of discussion yeah a great question it's it's funny to say post-theist because it sounds so cult-like <laughs> and you know it's it's not in like popular vocabulary so it does sound like this I get asked all the time so is this something like you and Barry thought up or is this like something I'm like nope <laughs> it's definitely <Right>. accepted <laughs> thought and you know has kind of risen to the you know theological forum and university anyway um yeah, that's, it's why we kind of don't like to use that terminology so much because the terminology isn't as helpful as like understanding kind of where you're at yeah. theologically. And so, you know, if anything, most of the time I use kind of post-Christian um, mm. because, you know, we're, we're post-traditional notions of Christianity and post-traditional notions of God and kind of God is the big other and God is being and God is object as opposed to, you know, event and experience as Derrida or Jack Caputo, you know, would say. Um, I think one of the biggest things for me is to sort of get, pe get people to start thinking along completely different lines. Um, and those lines would be something, um, you know, something along the lines of just acknowledging what it is we're engaging and what we're not. And I think, you know, Barry made the, the comment about, you know, the, the liberal progressive church can be just as entrenched as the conservative church. And I totally agree. And we talk about this a lot. We actually did a podcast on it a few months ago um, because they're still playing within the web of traditional theism. And so they have a God, they have a metaphysical being, you know, they're operating within kind of a supernatural understanding of God. Their God is just different. Their God is a bit more justice oriented. Their God is more inclusive. Their God is more universal, more accepting, more loving, whatever you want to say. Um, you know, they're a little bit more hands off when it comes to things like afterlife, but, you know, they're still inviting you into the same church building with the same kind of pulpit, you know, with the same kind of religious garb the pastor might wear. There's the, still the same old centuries old liturgy, you know, and they're still praying to a God in the sky, even if a lot of them don't even believe in that God in the sky, they, they continue on in their tradition. 
And that's kind of our pushback against a lot of it is like, okay, you know, your story is more inclusive and, and you're bent more towards social activism and all these, which is really a good thing. But theologically, sure. you're still fairly conservative. Um, and I think, you know, part of the work that I do and part of the work that we do is helping people understand the simple fact that God and scripture and Jesus and all of that is only as good as their interpretation. You know, people seem to think that Christianity and God live on some universal playing field, you know, and that it's just an absolute situation outside of time and space and history. But we're all located on some kind of historical access. We're all products of our culture and our context and our social locations. And those are the places where our gods are also born. They're the places where our gods are reborn and deconstructed and sort of reconstructed. And you know, kind of going back to the whole literature piece that Barry was talking, you know, deconstruction of literature and, and you know, the meaning belonging to the text. You know, I've done a, a fairly significant amount of work within philosophical hermeneutics. And, you know, I remember kind of in seminary moving out of my conservative Christianity and out of evangelicalism and out of a very one dimensional way of reading scripture, which was the Jesus and me story. And what is God saying to me today out of this particular scripture? And one realizing it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, it was not a Jesus and me story. It was a Jesus and humanity story, first of all. And second of all, that there is meaning in the text, but it doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't jump out at us. And it is found within the text and the text needs to be respected. And so I, what I mean by that is, you know, I remember reading people like Umberto Eco, who would make the distinction between the empirical meaning of the text and the implied, you know, meaning of the text. And, you know, if Christians do ever do any kind of study into the text, they tend to do historical, socio-historical, mm -hmm. you know, study. And, you know, uh, who were the original readers and what was the original author? And was this written by empirical Paul or <laughs> Paul's disciple? And, and was this, you know, originally meant for Ephesus or, you know, some other church? Because if it wasn't Ephesus, then we don't want to read it because it isn't authentic. And, and you know, uh, something like the implied empirical distinction within literary theory, within hermeneutics, when it's applied, it says, actually, the text is telling the story and we don't need anything outside of the text. So it doesn't matter who empirically wrote it. It doesn't matter who empirically its listeners were. The text will tell us both implied author and implied audience. It will tell us both the perfect author and the perfect audience. And we'll construct all of that. And in that process, it will construct its meaning and interpretation. And so there may be some sense of objectivity in the text, but it's only through our own subjectivity that we can kind of pick away at it. And it is a never ending process. It is a mm -hmm. never ending spiral into the future, you know, similar to, you know, John Austin's speech act theory from the sixties, this was really revolutionary and he was actually an atheist, but it's been applied to biblical hermeneutics for a couple decades now. And speech act theory basically says all communication has three parts to it. And, you know, it kind of takes you through decoding that, you know, what is the force in which something's being said and what is like the intended response when that thing is being said. And so just kind of applying some of these, these general hermeneutical principles to the text was amazing and gave us better interpretations, more stored interpretations, more human interpretations. But then you take those kinds of principles and you start applying them to life and you get, okay, there may be objectivity out there. There may be certainty out there. There may even be being out there, <laughs> but it is only through my own humanity and my own subjectivity that I can start to pluck away at what there might be and what meaning it has for me and my community while also understanding my historical locatedness, you know, in all of this. And that is a very long explanation for simply urging people to walk with some sense of spiritual and theological humility.
you know, in Mm -hmm. loosening our grip on things that we love to control, loosening our grip on what we think we know, and just simply stating the reality that there's lots of stuff that we don't know. And there are lots of pieces to the puzzle that we don't have. And so I think that's where religion takes such a deadly turn sometimes, you know, and and any form of Christianity takes such, you know, a, a fatal turn is when we say, this is exactly how it is. These are all the things that we know. There's not much more to know. And if there are things to know outside of this, it's peripheral because we've got all the important stuff for you right here. And I think, you know, what people are raging against in the current popular discussion of deconstruction, I don't think is, is, is God. If, if there is God, Um, you know, when, when Barry and I use the the word God, the noun God, we tend to mean it in a very Jack Caputo sort of way. You know, God is impossible, as unknowable, as unnameable, as uncontainable as the insistence of God, um, as opposed to an interventionist God. But, you know, it's not so much raging against God, but it's a, it's what society and what Christianity and what institution um, has constructed as God. That is what is kind of needing to sort of be, be pulled apart. Um, but also knowing that if there is a journey towards reconstruction, that it's not a matter of like tearing one God down and putting another up. It's sort of tearing one down and decentralizing the whole damn thing mm. <laughs> and, and sort of keeping it there and, and living there and living your life in the knowledge of un, unknowing or, or unknowledge. Yeah. I know that sounds really funky, but you know, the, the more I, I learn, the more I study, um, and probably I, maybe I same for Barry, you know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. But I think he would agree with me here. You know, uh, the, the more we find that we don't know, the more that we know, literally, the more that we download into our brain, um, the more we realize that actually we, we don't know much at all. And that is, I think, a really great place to be. It's a very freeing place, very liberating place um, when you don't have to pinpoint uh, and, and have it all, all figured out. That's really, really good. And really interesting. And I, I'm, I I'm in cheapest. What was that? Sorry? I told you, I told you she was smarter than me. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. Why did you go off for so long, Barry? <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I am so intrigued by this, this concept of uncertainty. So when we, we created a marker, we had to define deconstructing Christians for our research. So we created the three markers that we had, which were they question their faith tradition. It doesn't manage to answer it successfully. So they change core values of theirs. And then the third marker I put in, which I felt was really important, caused a lot of controversy. We actually said, saw a huge correlation. I think it was like 93% correlation with people that identify as deconstructing and this being a, a marker. So I think I was backed up, but it's a lot of controversy around it. And it was that people walk away with less certainty as they go on than they started with around their spirituality and faith. And I would argue across the board, because I don't think this is just a spirituality thing. I think it's a much broader thing happening to people that this is how it affects their spirituality. Um, So I just think that's a really interesting thing. But I think the reason it's so controversial is it's a really hard pill to swallow early on. I think as we're coming out of these worlds where we did have a lot of certainty, and certainty does, I mean, I'll tell you what, sometimes I look back and I think, oh, well, sure, nice. It was nice to have all that certainty <laughs> and safety and security and know the way it was going to work and know what was going to happen tomorrow and know if I prayed this, this would happen. And if I just avoided that, that would happen. And that was that was quite a nice way to live in some ways. I also look back and go, what a prison I put myself in. Yeah. And it also it wasn't a nice way to live in many ways as well. So I, I'm not saying it's as simple as that. 
But I do think coming out of that and, and being hit in the face with this wave of uncertainty, right? You start to look at things and go, well, you know, look at the text. And like, look at it like in this way and, and start to export. You go, well, what do you mean look at the text that way? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting all my answers from this thing. It's a very, it's a very uh, terrifying process to go through. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you both kind of navigate this? Because you're working with people here. You know, it's not just you're putting out a book or something like that that people read and engage with just on an intellectual level. This is people that I know you've worked with church pastors and different Christians and, and, and obviously people that are transitioning from that Christianity into more post-Christian thought. Even as people that are in post-Christianity, a lot of them are looking for some certainty. Yeah. Um, I think that's why we have so many different models of what it can, even an atheist often is looking for a certainty there and they, they yeah. feel, find quite they a bit safety in that certainty. I've, I've decided, no, there definitely isn't. Not all atheists, of course, but um, that can be the case. How do you navigate helping people transition into uncertainty and finding a peace? Because I have found long term, you, you develop a, a lot of peace about being uncertain and actually excitement Absolutely. and yeah. The one thing you could maybe be certain is, well, I'm probably going to get more uncertain and it's going to be good and it's going to be fun and it's going to be great. Um, what does that look like? Um, do you want to go with that? Or? Either way, it's <laughs> if you have some, I can tag you whatever you want. Uh, you go and then I'll follow you. Um, yeah, you know, th there's a lot of things that we're kind of coming up against in the certainty slash uncertainty conversation. And um one of the things is people dealing with trauma from the original certainty that they had. Um, I do outside of outside of H and Co. Barry and I both have Patreon pages, and um, one of the things on my Patreon I offer is one to one monthly calls. And in one of, one of my one to ones, I had this woman who was just deeply struggling with her Christianity, and she she has for a long time, and she just wanted me to, she didn't want me to help her find a new way of engaging Christianity. She literally came to me and was like, I want to be an atheist. I am done with Jesus. I'm done with God. I'm done with church. And not only am I done, like, I don't even like it. I don't even like Jesus. I don't even like the Bible. Like, <laughs> I, I really just want to be an atheist. And so I'm like, well, why are you okay? Be an atheist. Like, <laughs> what do you need from right. me? Um, you know, because yeah, it sounds like you shouldn't be a Christian if you don't like any of those things. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but she was like, I just really need to know that hell's not real. I just really need to know that the hell I'm pretty sure I stopped believing isn't real because I cannot chance going there. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, it's I a good one to hedge your bets on if, if there's anything, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and I, and I totally, I totally get that. Um, and it just like really breaks my heart because I, I talk a lot. One of the main things I talk about um, in my own personal content creation is afterlife because it's one of those things that, just haunt people like nothing else um and people just so it's like the last thing that they can't kick it's that that last monkey on their back that they just can't can't get rid of and so i spend a lot of time sort of talking through biblical ideas of afterlife and hell and and helping people see like hey these afterlife concepts are always born in context and culture and social locations it looks really different all throughout scripture and it's nobody's best guess we don't have one and so really don't don't worry about it um because at the end of the day you know if you're living a life that is deeply human and you're living life well uh don't worry like if there's something else then you're good if there's not then you had a beautiful you know that that sort of thing but um all that to say uh it's it's the the, the certainty that they had before they get to us that is really wrapped around their neck 
that yep. is, is so difficult to shake. So they want to move towards the uncertainty. They actually don't have any problem with it. This woman had no problem, you know, moving out of it, but it was like, I just need to know that this isn't certain. Um, and, and that's a different conversation. That's really mm. hard. So, you know, from one aspect, and Barry and I talk about this a lot, like we can take people only so far theologically um, and we're happy to do it and we're equipped to do it and we can do it and we have done it. We will continue to do it. But there is something to be said that if you are dealing with that kind of psychosis and psychological trauma, that there really does need to be an invitation into proper therapy and to professional help because your psyche needs to be addressed. Your heart needs to be addressed. And those experiences that, that left you broken need to be addressed. And you know, I've been having this conversation with some friends who are therapists and Barry and I have had it, you know, in the popular deconstruction conversation at the moment, there is a lot of trauma and there is a lot of trauma that is being unpacked and being talked about. Um, and I think it's good because for the first time, maybe ever, um, people are having really safe spaces to unpack some of it. But I also do worry and wonder, um, I don't see people often at least publicly, encouraging people to get themselves into therapy <laughs> um, and to really address these things on a psychological basis. Um, yeah. There's a whole area of psychology that's being opened up right now called, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, Phil, you know, religious trauma syndrome. Um, and all of these therapists are starting to pop up. And I think that's, you know, a, a good thing. So I don't know, I, I think I just waffled there, but those are just kind of some of what, um, what I've experienced um, in those certainty uh, versus uncertainty conversations. Mm -hmm. Barry, what do you That's think? Great. Um, oh, God, there's so many things to say. I know, well, isn't there? Well, I have a, it's like I, one piece of it. That's my well, one I, thing. I, I, I do want to address the uncertainty uh, thing. And I, I, I want to address the, the idea, you know, when you, when you said looking back, you know, there's a certain, wow, it's kind of cool when I was certain about things and, and there is that lie that, mm. that you know, it, and, and it's, it, it's such a deeply theological, you know, that that's the, the challenge that the children of Israel faced in the wilderness. Oh, wish we could go back to Egypt because at least we had bread. They yeah. forgot about the brick making. Amazingly, they forgot the yeah. trauma in their nostalgia, you know, Freud said that nostalgia was the impossible emotion because you're, you can't, nostalgia um, is technically um, desire and longing for a particular space and time. And it's impossible to go back in space and time. As human beings, we can return geographically, which is the real root of nostalgia, but uh, we can't return to a different time and there's a, a a very painful nostalgia attached to that but it's also linked to the way in which looking back is always uh freighted with uh an overemphasis of the wrong the wrong things so yeah. that, that's one thing that i think we try and sort of um deal with quite a little bit um just really quickly the other thing is again this conversation um, about uncertainty isn't just uh, a theological conversation. It's a cultural conversation. The whole world is uncertain about everything. I mean, the pandemic has thrown uh, the whole world into a realm of uncertainty about how we've been living for the last 
decade and there are so many people trying to answer it and they're going you know the environmentalists are going well this is mother earth getting us back and the conservatives are going this is the price that we're paying for uh you know accepting homosexuality and uh, the economists are going this is what happens when you uh allow you know unbridled you know free market capitalism you know everybody's trying to put meaning on on a, a particular level of un uncertainty but interestingly Jack Derrida, to bring him back into the equation, uh, in, a, in, a, in an essay said that, um, the, it, this is my paraphrase, he said, our, our, our reliance upon and our ignorance of the technologies that we use opens up a space for the rise and the return of magic, animism, and mystery. And in a sense, mystery in its broadest sense is, you could argue that in, in, in the theological world, mystery is uh, the known unknown, you know, so the, the extension of the mystical path is that you, you unite with the divine, but you can't name it, you know what I'm saying? But the other side of mystery is it's the unknown and the uncertain. And I think that there's actually a direct correlation between digital technology and the increase of uncertainty, because the wealth of access of information tells us that our understanding of the world is microcosmic. We only know what we thought was the whole story. It's, as you said, you know, this conversation 20 years ago, you couldn't have this conversation because it wasn't globalized in the way that it is now. You have to write somebody a letter or have a phone call, but you couldn't have like a a, a daily conversation around the world with people processing stuff. So. And I, I, again, I think that's an important part of the equation to let people know that their uncertainty has broader ramifications than just religion. But on the religious front, uh, I, I think what, what, what we try and do um, is, is two things. One is, um, you know, there's, there's a, a, a quote in the book of Ezekiel, where in, in one of his many encounters with God, um, the prophet is taken to this field of bones and he's asked a question, son of man, can these bones live? And I, and I think the, for us, part of our work is to say, what can be done with the bones of Christianity? What does a living skeletal version of Christianity in the 21st century, what might that look like? You know, that's the, that's the broader question where we can engage the philosophical, the theological, the communal, the social, and all of those kind of things and, and have a broad discussion about how and in what ways you can actually uh, rethink forward. Because the answer is these bones can live. But the, an army of bones is not the same as an army of flesh. So whatever this army is going forward, it looks different. And, and, and it should look different. I, I think that religion should always look different because it's always contextual. Mm -hmm. So it's not a rejection of the past. It, it's, it's, it's that you embrace your time and your time gives a different shape to things. 
and and coming to terms with that is is the second thing. And there's this this line that I've lived with from a long, long time from from a, a novel, um, a desperate novel that Leonard Cohen wrote um, in, in in a frantic phase of um, weird kind of experimentation, and it's called Beautiful Losers. Is is the book? Um, mad a mad book um but there's a line in there that i think is one of the most profound and and moving and significant questions to ask in in this whole conversation and, and the line is this how can i begin anything new with all of yesterday still in me and i think this is what people are facing the the you know the the kind of trauma aspect the the mm. the yesterday that lurks inside of us the 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 burden that we carry the the weight that we haven't been able to offload it it can be overwhelming and the question is how do i move on when i've got all of yesterday stuck inside me and i think this is where the the conversations then become more personal and 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 I I, I agree with uh, Maria I, I I think that there are there are levels depending on what you've been exposed to and what you're wrestling with where you have to resort where there are where the answers can't simply just be another conceptual thing you have to you have to, because you have to face your ghosts you know and you can't dispel your ghosts this is another Deridian thing you called it hauntology you know, we are haunted people. We we have a house full of ghosts. And the deal is you have to learn not to be afraid of your ghosts. You have to, you can't get rid of them. They hide. And when they come out, um, they don't have to control you, but you have to, you know, you have to turn and face your ghosts and know what they are. And that's mm -hmm. how you, that's, I think, how you, um, how you begin something new by, by realizing that uh, there is no dispelling of our history. It's part of our lives yeah. and uh, for good or ill, it's, it's, it's there. And uh, it can be a psychic scar for some people, um, but uh, it can be lived with, not cured. As Leonard Cohen also said, there ain't no cure for love. <laughs> and uh, it, it marks you and uh and there's no there is no cure for growing up in um i don't think a cure is the wrong word but um there is no complete resolve or resolution but there is a future mm -hmm. and there is hope um but it's a hope freighted by uh, the acceptance of doubt as a component of human existence and of religion. I mean, how, I mean, how we've actually managed to foster doubt, fob doubt off on the devil in charismatic churches or a lack of faith in Pentecostal churches or, or, or whatever. There's always been room for doubt, but you know, it's how you, it's how you deal with it. You know, so Dostoevsky, my hallelujah is not the hallelujah of a child, but was born in the crucible of doubt. Mm. You know, so doubt is actually an integral part of um, what it means to be human. To, we doubt everything um, and allowing ourselves. So, 
So the future, I think, is wrapped up in a, a, in a willingness to embrace and to continue embrace doubt, to live with uncertainty, uh, to understand the, the, the complex and contradictory nature of both the world that we live in and us in the world. We are contradictory human beings. All mm. of us are walking paradoxes. You know, we, we hold completely separate beliefs in tension without any problem except when we see it in somebody else but right. we're all walking paradoxes and, and, and complex so so our work is is really about that it, it, it's about um can these bones live the, the the kind of larger questions about well, what does it look like in you know What's the clattering sound of bones, the bones of religion in the 21st century? And then how do we begin the new when yesterday still, li still, still lives? Which I think is a big philosophical and a big theological, que big theological question that um, uh, is answered. And then the third thing I would say, and this I would say to anybody who um, is trying to deconstruct anything is I think the biggest thing that we have to overcome in the Western world is 2000 and it's 2000 years of the idea of a unitary cosmos, mm. that there is actually a worldview that encompasses everything and gives us a, a picture. Um, I, 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 uh, I gave up two things very early on in my own, if you want to use your terminology, deconstructive process. One was a belief in the inner life and the other was a belief in a comprehensive worldview. Mm. And I found liberation in both those, in both those things because, uh, and again, in this, if there's anything that we can learn from, from the world of the internet is there are a million billion interpretations of the nature of reality and we hold just one of them and none of them are comprehensive and this idea that you can sort of draw you know Dante you know the great hero of verticality you know God all the way down to the depths of hell you know we don't live in that world we live in the world of uh, cyberspace we live in the collapsed world where where things bleed and uh, you know we live in the world of Frank Gehry architecture you know, where the first floor becomes the third floor, but you can leave on the ground floor, you know, and yet it all, you know, the form is still architectural. And um, I, I, I think uh, this idea that we can work it all out with God, by all of life, um, that we have to come to terms with too. I think it's an unhelpful thing to, to think that you're going to get all your life sorted out just by having, you know, that. and I say the same of philosophy, you know, because philosophy works the same way, you know, you mm -hmm. call it Aristotle or Plato or whatever, you know, they're all like, this is how it all works, you know, the spheres, you know, it's all musical and everything is all held together by, by, by form and by essence. And, you know, that's why this, and you have all these hierarchies and stuff. And Christianity is, is no different. God's got a plan for you. You know, God's in control. Um, you know, well, yeah, if God's in control, it's a really chaotic form of control, isn't it? You know, because you've got, you know, it would have been so much better if 
when if you take like the story in the book of acts of the ascension if instead of jesus gave that vague like go to jerusalem and be my witnesses he'd have just said oh by the way here's a handbook before i go this is how it all works people right so you know women should shut up forever always because you know they they, they got nothing to say i you know i want i want elders and deacons you know and blah 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 it didn't come with that. You know, people keep going, oh, the Bible's a guidebook. It's a handbook. And now it's, you know, God is a hard drive or, you know, God is a cloud. You know, I mean, we always use the language of our time to say this is a comprehensive understanding of the nature of reality. No. Which it's terrible. A, right? <laughs> it's, it's reaching in the darkness for a glimpse of light. But you don't need the light shined on everything. We can't work it out anyway. Mm-hmm. It turns us into, um, yeah, I don't know. That was a big one. Well, and if I can just add so a little can... bit to that, um, you know, I think we do a lot with theological realities and not empirical realities because empirical realities, they're just impossible and it's kind of a fool's errand. And why would we, you know, it's why we, we've kind of stopped, um, you know, moving around in circles of metaphysicality and supernaturalism and object and being, because it's just, it's impossible. And so what are the theological realities at play here and how are they transformative and how are they powerful and subversive and still speaking? And so that's why like people get confused because with us, because we talk about being post-Christian, we talk about being post-church and post-theist, but Barry and I teach out of scripture all the time. Barry's a fabulous Bible teacher. I've done a lot of study within scripture. I love teaching out of, out of the Bible. And and it's why we do it because Mm. we are reckoning with theological realities and we are reckoning with how those theological realities speak to the particulars of context in everyday life, not empirical realities that are making universal stances and judgments on things for all of space and time forever and ever. And there is a freedom in that when you're, people want to debate me all the time. And, and I'm not interested. I'm not interested in debating you on resurrection or things about virgin birth or any, anything literal and historical that you want to hang your hat on. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Like whether it happened or not, it doesn't matter. What I'm after is the theological reality and what it's saying and what it's saying to us about humanity, God, God's relationship with humanity and you know what it all means. I mean, I always tell people religion is all it is, is humanity's mechanism or a mechanism for meaning making, right? That's what it is. And so, you know, when Christianity isn't working for someone and they go, okay, well, I'm going to become a Buddhist or I'm going to become a Muslim or a Jew or, any, or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's essentially exchanging one horizon of meaning making for another. And sometimes if people find it to be very helpful, okay, great. You've found your place in the world. That's fine. But most of the time people are just searching. It's like religion hopping or church hopping or denomination hopping or whatever. And there are crazy high stats on this kind of stuff. The amount of times people will switch those things in their lifetime if they are religious or, or Christian, but this isn't about being an evangelist. It's not about proselytizing. It's just saying like, you have a story, like Barry said, you can't cover over that. You can't negate it. You can't change it. You can build a future on it. So work out your story in your story. It's, it's why we still live and breathe within the nervation of Christianity in the West, because it's our story and we're working it out into the future. And I think that is what we want to lead people in. And that is what our work is all about. Mm, it's really beautiful. It's just, yeah, 
it's, it's a beautiful so way we're, to approach we're it. in the business of making meaninglessness yeah. <laughs> i love it i love it <laughs> it's very meaningful um no i i think it, it's such a fascinating concept you know we we i think we do this you know going back to your nostalgia point like we look throughout history and we find, oh yeah, they did exactly what I'm doing now the whole way through. And we forget that Christianity has evolved. Christianity develops and changes radically along the path, you know, and, and even in Judaism, that evolves. I mean, you just open your Bible and you've got Jeremiah going, I know Moses said that God said sacrifice stuff, but I don't think God said sacrifice. And you're like, uh, you know, if, if we've got this like linear, uh, like very flat concept of that's not evolving, some of this stuff just immediately creates problems, um, which is why you just put yeah. just in the words and it's fine. Um, but like, I think seeing this as an unfolding process, seeing this as an evolution, seeing this as a process of, of, of development, of growth, um, it, it might be very nonsensical to a lot of people coming from where they are to see a movement away from certainty as a growth. I think that's very hard for a lot of people to grasp. But, you know, um, I think, I can't remember if it was on this or on the other podcast, we talked about James Fowler briefly, but, you know, when we look at different developmental models of faith, yeah. um, we used one in our research, uh, a revised um, faith development uh, scale. It, it, almost all of them measure across all faith types, including actually coming out into non-faith types, like atheism stuff, what they measure in maturity is a decrease in certainty almost across the board unilaterally they, they go yeah when people mature and grow up in the way they they create meaning in their world and they see the world and they 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 uh center their ego it's with less and less and less certainty um and so yeah. i think it's really exciting what you're doing and and really and fascinating I, i'm sort of person that i could listen to you both forever i just think you know you're just incredible minds and and you know Maria, what you're saying about Barry, I think Barry would probably say the same to you. You know, I, I certainly think the same, that you, you're thinking and, and looking at things that are really complex topics, really hard to do. And the, the, the vast majority of people that are going through deconstruction don't have time to look at them at that level. They need them kind of broken down and fed to them a bit easier yeah. because, you know, we have the privilege, we're very fortunate to be able to do what we do for the for the most part, full time, we're, we're able to go, oh, I'll sit and think about this for a day and I'll actually delay doing even a podcast this week. I can, I've got the freedom to do that if I need it or whatever. The vast majority of people are working a job. They've got families, they've got kids, they've got like 110 things they're juggling and they don't have time to sit and think about these philosophical concepts. They don't even have time to sit and think, what's happening to me right now? <laughs> even that question can take years to unpack when someone else might be able to unpack it in a month if they're privileged enough, you know? Um, and so I really, really appreciate what, what, what you're doing because the ability to look at things on these higher levels of complex, you know, intellectual thought and very, and the cutting edge of, of thought as well. These, you know, we're talking about very, um, very recent ideas. Um, and generally speaking, it takes an idea a while to be around before it's very understandable. Um, and so you you are doing that work. You are you are bringing some of these very recent and, and new concepts, um, maybe older than we think, but new concepts and, and making them very accessible. And I love that. C can, can you um, tell me a bit about what you're doing right now? Because um, we were talking this week, but you are actually about to do a, a four-week course on deconstruction on using the language of can these bones live yeah. can you talk a bit about that because i know that a lot of people listening into this are going to 
be miffed big time that they only got like an hour and a half with you guys. Um, and they should check out the podcast that we did as well. We talked a bit more on, on your podcast and I'm sure there's lots of stuff on your podcast they can dive into and explore. But certainly from the perspective of as a deconstructing Christian, someone that's or in that verbiage, at least someone that's going through that process of evolving and, and, and changing radically in their faith, um, people that are connected to what you're saying, I'm sure would love to sit through a four week course of you guys kind of um, breaking this out. Can you, can you talk a bit about what that is and what people might be able to expect from it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we'll, we'll both speak to it. I'll, I'll speak to the logistics uh, about the culture courses and maybe Barry, if you want to talk a little bit about the, the content. Um, essentially, we do culture courses. We usually do them every month. Um, this one, we're starting mid-month, so March 11th. Um, but it's essentially looking at really pressing tomic, tomics, don't know where that word came from, topics uh, that come up. There we go. Topics come up um, that are coming up in culture, in pop culture and Christianity. Um and looking at sort of, okay, what, what's happening at the intersections here and making, like you said, this stuff a little bit more accessible for people who aren't in seminary, who aren't at university, who don't have time to read all the books and be in all the conversations. So our culture courses go for four weeks. Uh, they last for an hour, hour and a half every week. We do live Zoom meetings. Um, Lots of people can't make it live. So we have a learning platform in which you can access the lecture, the recorded lecture and you know watch along and be a part of it there. We have dialogue on our learning platform. There's no homework, there's no required reading. It's literally you know come and engage and soak up a good lecture, um, good content and you know engage with you know people who, who are in the class and, and the instructors as well. Um, you know, we have a variety of people who work with us on these culture courses. And then sometimes it's just us or sometimes it's just one of us. This culture course um, on deconstruction happening in a couple of weeks is being taught by Barry and myself. Um, but yeah, essentially we're trying to get to the heart of what the deconstruction conversation is all about. And we're exploring it through four different topics. We're gonna to be talking about doubt. We're gonna be talking about the trouble with church. We're gonna be talking about Jesus. And we're gonna be talking about, you know, the, the possibility of faith after religion and giving people really a hope for, for the future. Um, mm -hmm. But Barry, maybe you wanna talk a little bit more about the, the nitty gritty of the content. Well, I, I don't know. I think I think you just did a pretty good job, actually. It's a pretty good overview. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's like uh, what, what, what should I say? No, I mean, be careful with this one, Barry, in case you break the like, you know, just I know. Yeah, I, I don't want to break that. It's so concise and and and, and perfect. But but it's essentially, um, we 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 are um, sort of going to offer our take on both the macro and micro elements mm -hmm. of the deconstruction of faith um, alongside probably um, philosophical and theological um, practices of deconstruction mm -hmm. uh, uh, as well as a companion to a conversation but essentially we're, we're, we're sort of going to look at uh, uh, as we've kind of said all, all, all the way along the this particular this particular moment in time is characterized by certain dynamics within within religion and then within Christianity in in particular. And uh, the deconstruction conversation in its many forms is is one of the uh, it's a core conversation at the moment, and, and it comes on the heels, I think, as I said earlier, of a trajectory of developments in 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 late modern Christianity that have brought us to this point alongside, mm. you know, 
the, the technological world that facilitates a new kind of discussion. So we're going to bring all those kind of threads together and talk about basically um, what those bones might look like, what they can, you know, we're, we're, and we're not, we're not, we don't offer models, you know, because we think, we think there's a very uh, contextual dynamic to both personal and, and corporate, if you like that. Mm. that uh, so we, we, our, our approach is not to go and here's how you fix this or four easy steps to building a deconstructed church. You know, it's not, not right, that right. It, it, it's a, a different kind of theological conversation, but it's really around um, how, how you navigate and negotiate that both on a personal level and maybe even on a communal level. So what does a community, mm. what does a deconstruct, what can or even can a deconstructed community look like? Cause it can. I mean, you know, what, 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 what shape does that take when, when you let go of all the things that you think you have to have, you know, it's like, yeah. so yeah, see, I told you I've already messed up Maria's concise thing. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, I know just that one point will grab certain people because it's, it's, we, we talked to, I think maybe it was in your podcast again, that the grief that you go through, the loss that you go through in loads of different, losing a relationship with God, losing a, a relationship with your family, losing your, your certainty, losing, yeah. you know, so much stuff. But the number one, uh, this is really interesting, but they studied this quite extensively of, of the different griefs lost as you transition out of religion. Mm -hmm. And they, across the board again and again and again, the one that is the hardest on people is not the loss of even ex internal existential um, understanding of yourself. It's not your um, your uh, church. It's not God. It's it's the relationships themselves. Yeah, number one thing, and, and so community is is what people more often than not the number one thing they're seeking. This is why I, I made the deconstruction network. Is like I, I'll try and help you connect, um, but that's a big question, and it becomes complex because even in that, I remember when I first started the deconstruction network, I was like, all right, great go sign up and you meet each other and it'll be fine. I was very naive in a sense. Um, and then you click LA and there's 40 people. And then I get a mess. I'm like, wow, they're hooked up. That'd be great. I get a message from one of them going, I message every single person in LA and I just don't click with any of them because none of them want to get together to worship. And I'm like, well, I can see why maybe, but I'm yeah. like, I hadn't thought that you deconstruct, but still want to sing to a, a, a God. And then other ones go, oh yeah, I don't want to do worship or anything, but I do want to kind of still get together and pray or and someone else going, well, I'd like to get together and meditate, or I'd like to get in and talk about philosophy. And you go, oh, this is going to be a bit like herding cats. <laughs> so these yeah. kind of concepts of like, can we build a community? What could that look like? These kind of things, huge questions. And, and I think because it's so new, we're still figuring these things out. We're still kind of uh, flying by the seat of our pants, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, it's it's huge that we look at these kind of topics and we, we explore these topics and I, I really appreciate you guys doing that and I don't I am very careful at what I plug people will notice because I'm very uh, I'm very protective of my audience and we talked about this on your podcast as well I have quite a strong opinion on maybe the, the, with the best of intentions how unethical some programs some courses some books can be in becoming too prescriptive and this is what it should look like for you yeah. Um, and knowing you both, uh, I remember Miria said, oh, you can check this out and do this and this. And I'm like, I know you both. I know that's not where you're at. I know that's not your, your goal is not to be like, build this particular outlook on life and do exactly this. Um, so I, I, I personally just recommend people do, they, they check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to that and, and people can find it on your Instagram, your websites and stuff like that as well. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah. 
this was so much fun. Honestly, I absolutely loved it. And maybe we should we should do it again. Um, definitely at some point. We, we yeah, should have when we have a little more time, because this was a bit constrained. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was I was a bit tight on time, but we could be back for a you know like a three hour waffle or something. You know? <laughs> Maria, we'll leave you to another one so you can actually dive in a bit more and uh, get a word in edgeways. You know. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm used to it so it's it's all good it's all right i know i know but uh yeah no i i, I would love to dive into more of your story as well and, and and i mean both your stories just are just so intriguing to me and and i'm always fascinated by how people unravel and what how that st starts how, how it fleshes out and um, where people see themselves going and it's, it's just so exciting to to see the various ways people can engage in this life and yeah, yeah it is exciting. And, you know, we, we love the work that we do and we love kind of hopefully the freedom and the liberation and like the new directions it's it's providing for people. Um, speaking of our stories. So um, we're doing a deconstruction series on our podcast right now, and mm. you are going to be part five that will release tomorrow. Actually, it's, it's Monday the first, so it'll release on Tuesday the second. Um, but last the last two weeks of our podcast and these deconstruction conversations, Barry and I have shared our deconstruction stories. So mm, he's part okay. three and I'm part four. So if anyone's interested in that, yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to dive back and uh, and go through them as well. And there and for people that are used to my podcast, which goes on and on and on and on, this is a short podcast. <laughs> oh, is um, it really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. I'm usually an hour and a half to three hours, so I I, I, I go on um, and and so. You know, people that are used to that, like your podcast is 20 minutes. It's it's yeah. amazing. It's just nice bite sized. You can mm -hmm. dive right in, get some real juice out of it and, and be on with your day. And so um, I, I'm excited to go in uh, and dive into those because I don't have time for most of the podcasts I really like are like three hours long. And I'm like, where the hell am I getting three hours from? I know. I have all um, of these podcasts in, in my downloads and I'm like, oh God, I don't have time. Never listen to any of them. I know. It's just, <laughs> it's the overwhelm it's like the books right they stack up and you're like i'm gonna read them all and then you get through a, a handful um but no. or at least this the first been couple chapters really of a dozen books <laughs> yeah <laughs> or if if you're like you right you just marry someone that reads a lot you work with someone that reads a lot and you go could you read everything and just yeah kind of give me the cliff notes, <laughs> give me the cliff notes exactly <laughs> that's amazing it's the way to do it i reckon i reckon i need to i need to get around more readers <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome well, thank you so much yeah, well, or maybe not. Maybe maybe that's it. I've, I've got so much envy of all the readers I'm around. That I'm like, I want to read as much as you. Um, <laughs> tell people about how they can connect with you respectively and together. I know you've got Hitch & Co. together, but you have your own platforms and stuff that you're doing, your own Patreons. People can support what you're doing as well and connect with you more. Can you kind of give a little plug there? And I'll make sure there's links to those. And the show yeah. notes is just going to be links. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of show pages notes. Pages <laughs> So you can find us at hncogroup.com. And if you go to the collaborators page, uh, you'll see Barry and I, and that'll link to our websites. He is ukbloke.com. I'm mariafrancescafrench.com. We both have Patreons. You can find us on Patreon as well. Our website's linked to our Patreon. Our Instagram bio's linked to our Patreon. Um, and our Instagram on hnco, we, we try and keep that updated. Um, fairly often uh we were doing daily for a while but kind of fell behind a little bit but we're always trying to give out bite-sized pieces of information and not so much information but i would say thought theological thought philosophical mm. thought you know we do a lot um we we this was a very theological podcast but we do a lot with technology and digitality and virtuality um we do things with film and art every monday uh at least um, in England nighttime for America daytime, uh, we do Instagram lives called Monday Music.
musings. And it's Barry and I musing for about 20 minutes on like any given topic. So we'll talk about food trends. We'll talk about friend, uh, trends in, in retail or the internet or film or so we kind of break out of the realm of theology and philosophy a little bit there and just have fun. We have a little bit of a cult following on Monday nights. It's fun. So we do a lot of different things, but yeah, you can, you can find us all over the, the web. I'm sure Phil will put it in there for you. And yes, we're, we're inviting anybody and everybody into our new culture course on deconstruction. We'd love to have you um, if you've never done a culture course with us. Um, and I can tell you uh, absolutely unequivocally that it will be very solid content that you can trust and um, that we're, we'll be very excited and happy to and honored to sort of partner with you in, in your journey. So. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm, I really, really appreciate having you both on. Honestly, it's, it's been a real privilege and a real joy and certainly intellectually stimulating. I'm going to have to like kind of kind of process for the next few hours and, and then let it all sink in. Um, I like I need yeah, a little drink really after this. I know, right? <laughs> That's after midday. It's perfect. It is. It's pandemic. Sunny outside, you know. Day drinking on a Monday. Yeah, why not? <laughs> It's pandemic, it. right? Yeah, it's yeah. pandemic. It's our excuse for everything. <laughs> what are we going to excuse after pandemic, right? <laughs> I mean, well, then it's post-pandemic celebration. Yeah. Perfect. Post-pandemic, living life. In <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you very much, guys. I really thank enjoyed you. talking with you. Thanks I for really having appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know it's, it's, it's not the the funnest thing to do on a sunny Monday day when you could be outside drinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you guys have a good day. I'll, I'll let you know when this comes out. I think, um, so when does your course launch? It's the 11th, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Which the is what day? Friday? Thursday. 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 Week from Thursday. Okay. So my podcasts usually come out Thursday, so I'll bring it out this week because next week would probably be a bit tight so that people have time to think about it, to check it out. And so, yeah, so it'll be out this Thursday. I'll, I'll let you know and I'll, oh, I'll share some links and stuff. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks. This is great. And use right. the link I sent you so, you know, it'll go back to your, your affiliate account. Everyone, make sure you buy it through these guys. I get 10%. 10 I don't know what it was. 20%. 10%. <laughs> yeah, 20%. <laughs> Look, if you follow through on this, guys, I'll just retire. I'll disappear off the face of the planet. I was actually in it for the money. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. well, we're only in it for the book deal. So, you know, that's good. That's it. That's it. Oh, and talking of books. Oh. Make sure you grab Sex God and Rock and Roll. Barry yeah. Taylor. I can vouch for the first third of it. It's fantastic. Maria vouches for the rest of it. Um, and yeah, we're all looking forward to the sequel. And Barry, <laughs> the fleshed out bits. You need to send this man the sticker cover or the cover. Oh, yes, yeah, because I don't. Oh, like, you told me about that. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't like the title. So um, you don't like the title. Uh, you know, it's a bit. Where, was your hand forced by a publisher? Yes, it was. Yeah. He thinks it's kitschy. His Classic. his original title was Sacred Anarchies, which is why we named our podcast that because we're like, okay, let's nice. let this live somewhere else. But yeah, I love it. Awesome. But I'll send, uh, yeah. send me your address. I'll send you a sticker. I bought it. I bought it. That says great. I, I, I don't know wh how many copies of each are there. Like, uh, which one's going to be worth the mo most long term? That's the key. Ah, uh, well, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, there is the no stickers, reason. The yeah, the are, are you pretty pretty on it on sending out these stickers? Really getting it out there? Yeah, I do. Exactly. <laughs> it's a mission. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, have a great day, both Thank of you. you. I, I really appreciate what you're doing, and um, we'll stay in touch for sure. But right. I'll let you know on Thursday when it comes out for sure. Thanks. Perfect. Mate. Thanks, Phil. All right. Love you Bye. both. Bye. Love you. Bye. All right. So that was Maria French and Barry Taylor, the incredible minds behind H&Co. 
um, I would encourage you do check out their deconstruction course if that sounded interesting to you, sounded interesting to me. Um, the link of that is in the show notes, um, should be the first link in there. Um, their website is hncogroup.com. Um, their Instagrams are h underscore and co underscore. Um, and uh, you can check out uh, Maria and Barry's Instagrams as well or in the show notes. So there's a bunch of links there in the show notes. Do, if you want to support what they're doing and kind of pull from what they're doing as well, check out their patrons. Um, looks like they're putting out some great stuff um, on a weekly basis there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's plenty of ways to connect. Shoot them a, a DM, shoot them an Instagram message and let them know you loved uh, the conversation if you did as well. Um, that's always uh, good. Um, it's nice to get a message and, and know that you waffling with Phil for two hours was worth it, um, that people enjoyed it. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate people that do that. They encourage the guests that come on um, and tell them that they love this, uh, the, the conversations that we have. Um, as I said at the beginning, if you want to join our uh, online community, it's patreon.com slash phildrysdale, phildrysdale.com slash partner. That helps me keep doing everything I'm doing for free full time. Um, unfortunately this takes me <laughs> 60, 70 hours a week, most weeks. Um, and so I just, I, I can't work a regular job to pay the bills. And so it's only because people are, are generous enough to support what I'm doing, um, that I can do that. And, and apart from the, the online community that we, we, we have created and maybe a, a zoom here or there, um, there's not many ways I can, I can thank people because everything I do is free already. Um, and so obviously if you can't afford anything, if you, if you don't want to give, that's fine. Everything is still going to be free. I'm still there at Instagram. If you want to chat with me, um, the resources are still always going to be coming out every week. We're putting out new podcasts, videos, different things like that. Um, and obviously check out the deconstructionnetwork.com if you're going through the process of deconstruction, feeling lonely. It's a great way to connect with people locally. It's completely free. Um, and I just get messages all the time of people that have connected with someone through that. And it's really encouraging to hear. Um, if you have connected with someone through the Deconstruction Network, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear about it. Um, uh, it just makes me really happy knowing that uh, the hard work of making that website, which it was not easy to make, I'm not a web designer, um, has paid off. It, it really is um, heartwarming to hear of people all over the world, from Peru to um, Prague to London to California. It's, it's just incredible. All over the world, we're, we're seeing um, people connect. And that's huge because, as you know, if you're going through this deconstruction journey, it can be really lonely. Um, so, yeah, deconstructionnetwork.com. That's everything from me. Um, I love you all. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you for what you're doing um, in, in the process of becoming healthier, wholer people, exploring spirituality honestly and openly. It's hard work. Um, you should be proud of yourselves. If you do need to talk, shoot me a message on Instagram anytime. I'm just at Phil Drysdale. But for now, I'll see you next week. Peace.